Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to former National Security Advisor Robert C. O'Brien in the 21st century tech race with China. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thanks so much, those of you here in person, as well as the many of you who are online, good morning and welcome. I wanted to start off with the obvious, which is to encourage everyone here in person, those of you joining online and in the days ahead, to keep the brave Ukrainian people and their wonderful president in our prayers. It's important not just for them, not just for fighting the abject evil of Vladimir Putin, but also for the American people to support anyone interested in self-governance, which would be every human being on this planet. I hope to see the administration, Congress, and the international community place disproportionately crippling economic sanctions, or as I told the Wall Street Journal last week, in all of history, the gravest sanctions against Putin and Russia. What the United States does next is of critical importance because this conflict is about far more than Russia and Ukraine. It's about whether America's adversaries, especially the Chinese Communist Party, will look at the U.S. in the coming months and years as a formidable adversary or a weakening and irresolute superpower. How we support Ukraine will send signals about our support for other key partners and allies in the CCP's crosshairs, none more so than Taiwan. President Biden needs to show the CCP that the United States is serious about protecting its own interests. As to the conversation today, we're discussing the rise of China, which is the most persistent and consequential challenge that will confront America for the foreseeable future. From intrusive surveillance measures, to increasing human rights abuses, to threatening military capabilities, the CCP's presence is one that our nation can ill afford to underestimate. The next several decades will be shaped by advancing technologies in areas like artificial intelligence, semiconductor design, and fabrication capability, as well as cybersecurity and privacy quandaries and quantum computing and encryption. In this tech race with China, what the U.S. does next with these advancing technologies is critical. America's adversaries, including the Chinese Communists, will look at the United States and our allies in the coming months and years as either a formidable challenger or a weakening power. In a technology race that will determine the next global power, it's vital, obviously, that America prevails. The distinguished gentleman joining us today was with us two years ago for Heritage's annual McKinley Lecture while serving as the National Security Advisor to President Trump. In that capacity, among many other challenges, he dealt with the COVID challenges that emanated from China and which, of course, are still with us in part today. In a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed, Ambassador Robert O'Brien outlined a strategy to advance U.S. competitiveness and free expression while providing a word of warning not to empower China's technology goals. As the United States looks at various policies around technology from the national security sphere to free speech to foreign malign influence campaigns, his views are timely and always welcome here. 
Here at the Heritage Foundation, we work each day to advocate for policies that counter Chinese aggression and build a culture of free expression within our technological community. Mr. O'Brien served as the nation's 28th national security advisor under President Trump. While in that position, he refocused the national security apparatus on the challenges from China, creating policies to combat China's technological prowess, and building inroads with allies around the globe to work together against a common foe. After Ambassador O'Brien's remarks, Dustin Carmack, my friend and colleague from our Center for Technology Policy, will continue the conversation on how conservatives and America can win the technological race with China. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Robert O'Brien. Well, good morning and thank you, uh, Dr. Roberts, for that uh, terrific introduction and your comments on Ukraine, which I fully endorse. Uh, wonderful to be back in person. It feels like we're getting back to normal. I see some of my friends and colleagues here and it's, uh, it's wonderful to see everybody. Uh, but it's also, uh, uh, as we're, we're getting a sense of normalcy, uh, I, I was in Orlando over the weekend. Uh, there was a little event down there. And uh, uh, we're, we're getting back to normal. The airports are packed. People are traveling. Families are out going to Disneyland and, uh, and Universal. So it's great. But it's also, for, for the folks who are watching online via Zoom or, or Teams, uh, it's great to be with you online. One of the things that we've learned from this crisis, this pandemic, is that we can have these meetings, and they're no longer just the province of folks that can slip away from uh, their office at lunch in Washington or New York. Uh, but for those of us who live in the rest of the country, and I'm out in California most of the time, uh, we can join these from, uh, from Zoom. So for the folks who are online, uh, uh, great to be with you. I think it'd be tough to start today uh, uh, with the, before we get into today's topic without talking about Ukraine. And uh, I've got just a, a couple of words. First, the bravery, the esprit de corps, the courage of the Ukrainian military and the people that are supporting it. And right now, there's not a lot of difference between the Ukrainian military and the people. And you see these you know, 80-year-old men with, uh, and, and grandmas with uh, AK-47s and uh, willing to, to fight for their homeland, and, and, and young people with Molotov cocktails going up against Soviet armor. Uh, it's pretty inspiring. And uh, they will and, and will remain in our prayers. Uh, the second is, uh, I'm, I'm going to say something that's unfashionable. Great men and great women still matter in history. And, and historians debate whether it's social movements or demography or geography that shape the events. I've always believed that great men and great women shape the events of history. And we're actually seeing that with President Zelensky right now. Uh, we've got a, a Churchillian figure emerging. And for, for the young people here, uh, it, this does not happen very often uh, in history. And uh, we wish him well as he fights for the cause of freedom. Third, we need to take President Putin's threat seriously. He's threatening the Baltics. He's threatening Finland. He's threatening Sweden. Uh, he's threatening NATO. Uh, and, and we haven't taken this threat seriously uh, for many, many years. Uh, we've said these, these are the rantings of a madman or someone who's irrational. He's shown that he means, like, like other dictators in history, he means what he says. Uh, he said he was going into Ukraine, and he did. And so uh, I echo what uh, Dr. Roberts said. What Larry Kudlow, our former NEC director, and I have been saying for some time now is we have to decouple Russia from the Western economy, from the free world economy absolute decoupling, not selected sanctions, not selected decoupling from SWIFT, not, not half measures. Uh, the time for that is far past. Uh, we, have to, we have to go uh, the, the full uh, measures. We can't exempt oil and gas because it's the oil and gas that, that's allowing Putin to run his war machine, to modernize his nuclear uh, capability, to build his hypersonic missiles, to build his new frigates. He's making more money 
Uh, on every time the, the oil ticks up a dollar, he makes far more money in oil and gas sales than he loses in sanctions. And so uh, the days of, uh, of exempting oil and gas sales have to be over. Uh, we have to cut Russia off full. And uh, because the current sanctions are neither deterring him nor the Ayatollahs. And uh, all, all we're doing is putting more money uh, in rising oil prices in, in his pocket and in the Ayatollah's pocket. Uh, we don't need to do that. Fourth, uh, it's nice to see the Europeans waking up to the threat. Uh, one of the things we were criticized in the, the Trump administration for was, was being tough on our allies. It didn't mean we didn't love our allies. It didn't mean we wanted, wanted to uh, break with our allies. But we wanted our allies to understand the threats that we're facing with the People's Republic of China and with Russia and with Iran and, and uh, North Korea and other threats that were facing, the, the jihadist threats that we're facing around the world. And it's unfair to saddle the American taxpayer with the cost of defending the entire free world. It was time for the European allies to step up. And so when, when we went to the NATO summit back in uh, 2019, in December of 2019, uh, there was a lot of uh, angst that, uh, that President Trump was blowing up the summit. We left the summit after a lot of hard negotiating. I spent a lot of time with Jens Stoltenberg, who became a very good friend and is a great Secretary General of NATO. We left with a $400 billion commitment in additional NATO spending over 10 years. We left with nine countries with, with 10 and 11 on the way of meeting the 2% uh, criteria for 2% uh, uh, of their GDP devoted to defense spending. Uh, so that was a huge success. And I think people now are looking back, having seen Russia invade Ukraine, and realizing that there was real foresight. It was tough negotiating, it was tough diplomacy, but it was the right thing to do. And sometimes it's not just all family photo ops at these uh, international summits. Sometimes you, have to, you actually have to get in across the table and, and negotiate with some tough folks and, and get what you need. Uh, I want to uh, recognize Pre Prime Minister Johnson and President Macron. I think they've both been stalwart uh, through the, uh, the crisis and, uh, and in the tough sanctions that they placed on the Russians and in, in supporting the US and our allies and, and Poland and Ukraine. And I welcome Chancellor Schultz's new commitments to NATO and Ukraine. Uh, this is a 180-degree turnabout. And I tweeted yesterday, uh, and uh, you know, I have a lot of friends in Germany, uh, like, like many people here who served. We spent time in Germany, uh, wonderful fond feelings towards Germany. But Germany had not been taking a leadership role in this crisis, and they haven't been taking a leadership role in Europe for some time. And I was pretty candid with them, and I was pretty tough on the Germans. And, and so now it's time, now that the Germans have said they're going to go up to 2% in defense spending, uh, now that they're going to send uh, military equipment to Ukraine, now it's time to thank the Germans and welcome them back to the fold, and uh, and it's good to see that development. And then finally, there's much more to be said on, on Ukraine, but I want to point out uh, uh, one thing that uh, the Heritage Foundation is doing. Jim Carafano has done a, just a terrific job keeping policymakers across the government uh, and, uh, and those of us who are former policymakers up to date on what's happening in Ukraine. The Heritage Foundation has become a an information center where you can get quality, good information that's vetted uh, before we go on TV, before we uh, advise folks. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I appreciate Jim, you and your team are doing a, a terrific job here at Heritage. So let's now talk about the topic of technology and specifically the US tech industry and the importance of continued US leadership in the field. Uh, and it's related uh, to what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, as a threshold matter, let's get one elephant out of the room. Uh, and I've written about this uh, extensively, the U.S. tech industry has some problems. Uh, the Heritage Foundation uh, just published a great report a, a few weeks ago, uh, Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, a roadmap. And I, I care, uh, Frederick uh, did a terrific job examining the problems of big tech, and I'm going to touch on some of those issues uh, as we talk today. But if you haven't recently got the report, uh, I'm sure it's available on the Heritage website. Uh, get it, download it, and read it. It's, uh, it's really terrific.
But there are people that are angry at tech. Uh, and uh, one reason is big tech is censoring uh, our citizens online and on social media platforms and elsewhere. There, uh, I think there's a backlash against cancel culture. I think there's a backlash against the uh, the wokeness that, that was taking place in corporations, and I think people are fed up with it. Uh, but unfortunately, it's still uh, somewhat rampant in tech. And and fairly uh, on the other side of the the aisle, there's concern about disinformation uh, on on tech, and uh, the the tech companies not getting a tighter grip uh, on some of the nonsense that we see. And so what's happened is both sides have gotten to Congress and they've expressed their uh, frustration and they've gotten the attention. And, and both the House and Senate uh, have multiple bills pending the, to, to purportedly deal with these concerns. There's also a real concern that uh, notwithstanding President Trump's building a new bipartisan consensus on the rise of, of China and the threat of the Communist Party of China uh, to the United States, that too many tech companies are still uh, close uh, to the Chinese government, to the Communist Party of China. And so the, the, it's, it's not a surprise that Congress is now taking action. But unfortunately, these bills, if they exacerbate, or if they're passed, will actually exacerbate those concerns by forcing greater integration of US tech into the Chinese market. The proposed legislation will damage our core area of strength vis-a-vis -vis China by placing companies at a structural disadvantage compared to their global competitors and those competitors are almost all in Beijing. The US, if the US tech industry does not maintain its leading position, gain ground, and advance, China will quickly advance and displace us. We will have a very dangerous uh, situation and consequences for the United States, our national security, and our economy, but it will also affect our allies and our partners around the world. So my message today in this era of great comp power competition is that a stronger, not a weaker US tech industry is needed. At the same time, big tech, and this is for, for those of you who are listening out in Silicon Valley, and I've got friends there, uh, big tech must correct its problems and reform, or it'll have a very small constituency left supporting it, and it'll be irreparably damaged by the backlash and the legislation that results from, the, from the, uh, such a backlash. So let me go through a, uh, a couple of points that I think are critical to the, the debate before I sit down. I look forward to, to sitting down with Dustin and, and doing some Q&A. First, and this is a threshold matter before we get into the specifics on tech, it's important to understand the goals of our greatest rival and our greatest geopolitical foe, uh, the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party, which governs the PRC. Chairman Xi Jinping has committed to spend $1.4 trillion a trillion with a T, dollars by 2025 under the Made in China 2025 initiative to surpass the United States economically and to achieve global domination of high-tech industries like robotics, advanced information technology, aviation, and electronic vehicles, as well as critical technologies such as quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and autonomous systems. As of 2018, nine of the 20 largest global technology companies resided in Beijing they're being subsidized and, and, and uh, supported by the Chinese government as national champion companies. Now, events of the past few years have proven that China is not communist merely in name only. As many argued for decades, they were becoming more liberal and you could, you could uh, ignore their rhetoric. It's the same sort of argument that we heard about Vladimir Putin. Oh, ignore the rhetoric about restoring the Soviet Union. He's just saying that. Rather, the Marxist-Linus flavor, the communist ideology that Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership practice is truly everything in Beijing. I made this point at a speech in, in Phoenix last year. Whereas many thought that China would be transformed into a more liberal economic uh, and, and 
and more democratic political state, it has actually become more totalitarian in practice over the past several years. Under the CCP's form of communism, the individual is a means to be used toward the achievement of national goals and exists only to serve the state. So those of us who are old enough to remember uh, studying Marxist-Leninism in college, I don't think it's, uh, it's taught the same way anymore. We were taught it in college because we wanted to know what the adversary's ideology was. Uh, I think we've got, unfortunately, people now teaching it as a, uh, as a path to the future for America. But, but those, those comments sound, sound dated, uh, but they're not dated in Beijing. In fact, I'll just go off script for a moment and tell you something. When I gave my speech in, in Phoenix, it was a tough speech, and I said that uh, Xi Jinping is the heir to Lenin and Stalin and that the Communist Party of China is a Marxist-Leninist party. And uh, there was a series of four speeches, Chris Ray, Bill Barr, myself, and Mike Pompeo, each gave a speech that together we believe was, was kind of the equivalent of, of the long cable uh, back in, in the Cold War days. And, and everyone got criticized except my speech. My speech didn't get criticized by the, uh, the Chinese. And they were upset because everything I said in my speech, I quoted from Xi Jinping thought and I quoted from Communist Party uh, literature. And the, the papers didn't quite know what to do because if they criticized anything I said in the speech, they'd be criticizing Chairman Xi, and, and that usually doesn't end well for you in, uh, in China. So, so when I was sanctioned, along with, the, with a number of my colleagues when we left office, uh, I was sanctioned for, for claiming that China had become the, uh, my, my criminal act was claiming that China had become the biggest geopolitical threat to the United States. And so that was the basis for sanctioning me. It wasn't the speech, it wasn't talking about their, their Marxist-Leninist ideology. But that philosophy extends to China's current crackdown on tech. While some of the U.S. have celebrated and sought to emulate the crackdown, what is really happening behind the scenes is that Chinese companies, including Tencent and TikTok and ByteDance, are being further deputized as arms of the CCP and as agents to collect foreign data and shape U.S. discourse. And when they collect foreign data, well, I was interested to see the other day, uh, the Russians are now posting, putting posters up for their soldiers in Ukraine telling them not to use TikTok, uh, that uh, they don't want the data to go to Beijing. So if the Russians are concerned about uh, uh, TikTok with their greatest allies, I, I think it's something we need to be concerned about as well. So whether Xi's ambitions to extend ideological control beyond China and throughout the world and, and through the CCP's efforts to create the so-called community of common destiny for mankind, Beijing's design for debt colonialism through the expansion of the One Belt, One Roads initiative, the ongoing genocide of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, uh, or its disastrous handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which crippled the planet. Everything we have witnessed underscores the United States, the United States must not cede leadership in tech to Beijing. In the U.S., China is already exploiting its vast economic power to gain leverage and advantage over U.S. society, from the media to entertainment to sports teams to individual Americans. And we've seen that, whether it was it's the new Top Gun movie with Maverick's uh, uh, famous uh, flight jacket, uh, bomber jacket being... Uh, are redubbed, or it's uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets uh, being shut down for, for tweeting in support of the, the people of Hong Kong. China's University of Science and Technology claimed earlier to have built the world's fastest program, programmable quantum computer. It's supposed to be some 10 million times faster than its closest competitor. If these claims prove true, and China gains the lead in quantum capability, our secure military and intelligence communications in the future of the free and open, open internet will be put at severe risk. China is making significant advancements, including autonomous systems and artificial intelligence. As I discussed in my op-ed, China's investment in artificial intelligence, including the hardware to exploit this technology, could lead to the capability to use swarms of lethal robots to target U.S. warships and aircraft en masse. Now, this is something that previously had been the province of science fiction, but is, is coming to life. 
if China gains a competitive advantage of, over the U.S. in the AI field, it will, quote, also create a digital foundation for a geopolitical challenge to the United States and its allies, according to the National Commission on Artificial Intelligence uh, recent report. The United States simply cannot cede tech leadership to Beijing, as I mentioned before. And I want to be clear on one thing. As I've said many times before, I have a deep respect and abiding respect and admiration for the Chinese people, and I know the American people do as well. Uh, they were one-time allies in a very tough fight uh, in World War II, and, uh, and we think the world of them. So when I say we cannot entrust the future of global technology to China, I'm not speaking to the Chinese people, and of course not speaking about valiant and patriotic Americans of Chinese descent, but I'm speaking about the Chinese Communist Party and its Marxist-Leninist leadership. America's economic greatness has been born out of research, innovation, and invention, primarily in the private sector over decades. It has been America's private companies that have led the way, and America needs these companies to continue to have the freedom to lead us and to innovate. That is why I have spoken out against the various bills introduced recently which would limit US, the U.S. tech industry's ability to engage in mergers and acquisitions, damage the capacity of DOD partners to secure and protect their platforms from foreign adversaries, and here's the amazing thing, require access to data and U.S. infrastructure for Chinese tech companies, among other international companies. All of these things would give Chinese and foreign tech firms an advantage over the United States and our firms. At the same time, these bills leave the Chinese tech rivals, such as TikTok, Tencent, ByteDance, Alibaba, Huawei, and Baidu, free, to reign, free reign to expand their capabilities and dominate the world tech sector. It would be a grave mistake to impose these limitations on the very U.S. tech companies that can compete with China's national championship champion companies uh, in this sphere. Now, I understand these bills, while problematic, were written in response to legitimate concerns of the American people about the conduct of U.S. big tech, and the American people deserve solutions. There are a number of actions Congress could take instead of passing these bills that would address current concerns about the power of U.S. tech firms. While leaving our leading tech companies room to continue to make the kind of advancements and research and de development necessary to outpace China in the global tech industry. First, as I wrote in the, in the Wall Street Journal, Congress should undertake a serious recent examination of the challenges facing American tech and design tailored legislation, not blunderbuss or, or sledgehammer legislation. Now, censorship, misuse of Americans' data, integration with Chinese interests, misinformation, each of these issues is a serious problem. On the censorship point, there's a huge diversity problem in big tech. There are few, if any, conservatives in big tech, and that leads to groupthink, and that's with the exception of, of maybe uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel's companies. Accordingly, most big tech companies are driven by groupthink. Deplatforming the former president of the United States and possibly the future president of the United States, while the Ayatollahs, Putin's trolls, uh, North Koreans, uh, Antifa, anti-Semites, and others are active on the platforms, enrages over half of this country. Censoring conservative voices will lead to exactly the type of legislation that will break up American tech companies, and Silicon Valley and, and our, their friends in Austin and Salt Lake and Boston and Seattle need to wake up to this fact. Now, Congress should also turn its scrutiny to the Chinese companies that compete with U.S. tech. TikTok, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, all of them, and take up legislation that would even ban these apps, most of which are used by Beijing to capture Americans' personal data. And they're, they're also hotbeds of censorship for the CCP, exercising CCP censorship around the world. Now, India has provided us a great example, and uh, 
Uh, this took place after the, the unfortunate and, and sad attack of, of China on the, the Indian patrol, on the line of actual control uh, about a year and a half ago. But they've banned over 239, 239 Chinese apps from use by Indian citizens in India. While it may seem extreme, banning these apps uh, for use in India, Delhi took an important step to protect its citizens and make sure that they could not be exploited by Beijing. Now, U.S. tech companies should take the initiative on this issue before the Congress even acts. And U.S. tech companies need to get out of bed to the extent they are with their Chinese counterparts and the Chinese Communist Party. They can start doing that now and, and start protecting American consumers and American users of their platforms. Now, second, the U.S. must expand its focus on research and development on cutting-edge technology and secure the advances that we're making right now. Our universities and tech companies are the best in the world, and they have to have the freedom to lead the way in conducting groundbreaking research and development activities. The R&D focus must include quantum computing, AI, autonomous systems, virtual reality, as well as other such areas like 5G. Indeed, how the U.S. approaches the, spec the, the issue of spectrum uh, required to operate 5G networks will do much to determine the outcome of technolo technological co uh, competition with China. And the big issue there is if we don't have 5G here, it's going to be impossible to encourage U.S. manufacturers to build the phones and the systems that work off 5G in the U.S. They're going to, they're going to build products overseas that comply with Chinese 5-tech uh, regulations and rules and, and, and platform norms instead of the U.S. And so we need to open up Spectrum in the U.S. Uh, immediately. I'm going to talk about that, I think, tomorrow at Hudson. Uh, the technological competition, which will drive decades of innovation in fields as diverse as medical and public health to supply chain management and the Internet of Things, are all dependent on how we respond to this crisis or this challenge. A free market will drive the greatest and most enduring innovations, and the United States should thus prevail. And I'm confident that we will prevail, and I'm confident the free market will allow us to prevail. Uh, but we've got to be respectful of it. Third, we must in invest in the next generation of tech engineers, innovators, and inventors. Uh, this is an education issue. Uh, we need to get back to teaching STEM in our high school. There's too much nonsense being taught in high school and college now. Uh, I just saw uh, some was uh, a professor at uh, LSU tw uh, sent out an email saying we need an expert on Ukraine, and they found out they had you know no experts on European history in, in their department. And you, I'm not even going to mention. I don't want to get into a culture war here. I'm not going to mention the professors that they do have, uh, but there was no one who could talk about Ukraine or European history. Uh, so we've got to get back to investing in our in our schools, and that's something on the STEM front. Let's teach our kids how to read, to write, to do arithmetic, and then how to do science. Uh, and, and I say that having the only science I've got is political science. I think my, my last science class was uh, chemistry at Cardinal Newman High School my junior year. But, uh, but, but we need people who do understand science, and, uh, and we've got to invest in it. Uh, fourth, we need to shore up the protection of U.S. tech information, including the next generation of research being done at our universities and big, big uh, uh, tech firms. Every year, over 100,000 Chinese students and researchers arrive in the U.S. to do research and development work. Think about that. We allow 100,000 Chinese in every year. And whether it's the Thousand Talents program in which Beijing uses to entice or coerce Chinese students and researchers, researchers to secretly bring back the knowledge and the technology they obtained here in the U.S., or it's hacking our universities or companies, or sending st Chinese students or researchers with ties to the military. I mean, there was one time we learned uh, we had more Chinese military officers studying advanced STEM degrees here 
in America than we had U.S. military officers studying in those for those programs here in America. I mean, that can't happen. And they're all tasked with uh, bringing those uh, uh, secrets back to China for military and for civilian purposes so they can defeat, defeat our military but also defeat our corporations and our companies. The DOJ, FBI, and Department of Homeland Security must work to secure the hard-won advances that we're making on, to prevent intellectual property theft. Unfortunately, the DOJ's recent termination of its special task force initiative on Chinese espionage was a step in the wrong direction on this front. Again, the worst thing we can do in this regard is to pass antitrust legislation that would actively require U.S. companies to open up their hardware, their software, and their operating systems to access by their Chinese rivals. Fifth, the U.S. must continue to reshore and nearshore manufacturing capability to ensure the supply chain continuity and integrity of our tech industry. There has been some progress in recent years, in fact, on reshoring. In fact, the first wave in the semiconductor industry has involved foreign companies uh, and not U.S. companies. Uh, you've got Taiwan's TSMC is building a $12 billion plant in Arizona, and Samsung just announced a $19 billion factory in Texas. And it's past time for companies, especially those with formerly Chinese ties, to bring production back stateside. Now, Intel's new CEO, Patrick uh, Gelsinger, announced just a few weeks ago that the company is going to invest $100 billion uh, over the next decade in a new semiconductor facility near Columbus, Ohio. And that's just terrific news. Uh, for starters, it will spend $20 billion to build two new factories, creating 3,000 permanent jobs and 7,000 construction jobs. And remember when we were told, uh, especially by our friends on the left, those jobs aren't coming back. We can't have manufacturing jobs. We can only, we can only have fast food jobs and, and PR and, and, and financing here in America. Those jobs can come back, and they will come back. And it's a great start uh, with Intel leading the second wave of semiconductor companies coming back to America and reshoring our, our uh, manufacturing here. So continuing this trend is critical to U.S. national security. Other U.S. tech companies should take note, and other companies outside the tech industry should also take note and bring their manufacturing and their supply chains, especially in pharma and other critical industries, back to the United States of America. Six, Congress should intensify its work to ensure that Wall Street is not investing in Chinese funds that support the growth of the Chinese tech industry, including funds and in companies that are, that are building up the Chinese, the People's Liberation Army, the People's Liberation Navy, uh, and the security services. Uh, now that we've been awakened, in, awakened to an understanding of, of Beijing's intentions and goals, we cannot fund their efforts to overtake the United States in these areas. One of the things that Larry Kudlow and I had a lot of success with uh, towards the end of the Trump administration, we found out that the Thrift Savings Board, which contains the, the retirement savings of our, our military and our, our many of our federal government workers, was planning to invest in a fund that was, that was going to put a big portion of it into China and invest in companies that were actually building warships and submarines uh, that were going to be our adversaries in the Pacific. So they were going to take the money of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and put it into building platforms for the Chinese that were going to defeat us. And we stopped that. And uh, But it's, it's not just the Thrift Savings Board. It's, it's pension boards all around the country, local and state. Uh, and we need to get on it. The Heritage Foundation's recent report makes a number of strong recommendations that would uh, seek to prevent U.S. tech companies from helping China achieve its goal of overtaking the U.S. Uh, again, uh, read the report. Uh, but a prohibit, they recommend prohibiting big tech companies from entering joint ventures with companies directly to t tied or beholden to the CCP, just to name a few. Now, fortunately, many American firms and allied firms are waking up to the need to disentangle themselves and decouple themselves from China. When taking measures to address the problem, big tech 
uh, we should distinguish between those companies that have largely abandoned their prior work with China and those that are still working with the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party. As the victims of communism's corporate complicity scorecard recently demonstrated, while every company reviewed in the initial set has some degree of exposure and risk of supporting Beijing's problematic activities, two stand out as relatively less dependent and exposed, Facebook and Google. So that's good news. But we need more companies than Facebook and Google to be on that list. In this area of great power competition, we must take steps to ensure that we do not injure U.S. national security and leadership through efforts to correct the legitimate problems and concerns with the U.S. tech industry. And I urge the House and Senate to, to do that. In my CPAC speech on Saturday, I sounded an optimistic note. And I, I raised this issue in a, uh, maybe you would have appreciated this, a much briefer form uh, uh, for CPAC than I have today. Uh, I said, we must rebuild our industrial base so that we're never again dependent on China. That means staying ahead on technology, especially advanced semiconductor chips, space, cyber, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. We have Silicon Valley, we have Elon down in Texas, and we have our allies in Tel Aviv, so we'll win. But the Chinese are pumping billions into these areas, so we can't be complacent. Now, moments later, uh, Elon Musk made me look very prescient when he tweeted, Starlink service is now active in Ukraine, more terminals are en route. Uh, so we've got a, you know, a modern day Iron Man basically looking at what was happening in Russia and, and you know, the Russian invasion in Ukraine and Russia attempting to shut down Ukraine's internet and saying, it's not going to happen. I'm going to take care of it myself. And so uh, congratulations, Elon. It was brilliant. So we face challenges today, but I'm confident America will rise and meet them, especially when it comes to winning the technology race. Uh, so may, may, may God bless you all. May God bless the United States of America. And thank you very much for having me here at Heritage today. Thank you. Hey, hope I left enough time for questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for your remarks. Uh, excellent. And thanks for joining us today here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I really wanted to start off unpacking. Uh, you know, I saw your CPAC speech, and we can't really start without talking about what's happened in Ukraine and Russia. And I saw your uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed with your former chief of staff, Alex Gray, kind of talking about this as we're talking about China, but we can't also talk about what's happening with Russia. And while we're kind of having, there's debates uh, I've seen in the conservative movement and others uh, talking about its importance, can you really unpack where you think uh, things are as it stands today? Um, what advice you would give to the Biden administration right now? I know you've you made some remarks about some State Department protocols and things that you think we should be doing diplomatically, uh, but I'd love to unpack that a little further. Well, thanks, Dustin. Thanks for being here, and thank you for your service. Uh, you know, for to the United States, you did a great job working for John Radcliffe, and uh, and so it's it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, look, what, what I've told folks that there, there's kind of a false dichotomy I think that's that's being a, uh, uh, imposed on on the Russia-Ukraine situation. That is. We can't deal with the Russians in Ukraine because we've got so much to worry about in China and Taiwan. And, and it is true, Taiwan is our biggest long-term threat. It's our longest, our, our long-term geopolitical threat. And, and Alex and I were on the groundwork, you were there, John, John was there, in building this new consensus that's now become a bipartisan consensus that the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party that leads them is a tremendous threat to our liberty uh, and to our economic prosperity in the future. Having said that, the person who's watching Ukraine the closest is Xi Jinping. He's watching to see how we respond to this challenge. If Xi Jinping sees a strong United NATO, if he sees Finland and, and Sweden joining NATO, uh, if he sees increased defense spending by Germany, if he sees increased uh, unity among the alliance, if he sees Russia absolutely cut off from the world economy, 
I mean, think about it. China wants to dominate the world, but they want to dominate the world by selling things to us, by selling things to Europe, by selling things to India. If, if they see Russia absolutely cut off from the world economy, and Xi Jinping is looking at having to bring you know, 20 to 30 million people a year into his middle class and says, wait a minute, if I invade Taiwan, I'm going to lose, they're going to do to me what they did to the Russians, I'm going to lose the American market, I'm going to lose the European market, I'm going to lose Singapore, I'm going to lose Japan, I'm going to lose India. Where is he going to sell those things? They don't have a big enough domestic market to, to keep the economic growth that they have. So we need to send a message by what we do today with Russia to Beijing, because if we don't, Taiwan is going to be in the same boat, and we're going to be talking about the brave people of Taiwan fighting on the beaches against the, the Chinese Communist Party, the PLA Navy, and the PLA Army. Uh, they're going to be, you know, PLA, People's Liberation Army and PLA Navy uh, fighting them on the beaches. We're going to be saying the same things about them that we're saying today about the Ukrainian soldiers, and uh, we need to avoid that. So the tougher actions we take now on Russia, uh, the better we're going to be positioned to deal with China in the future because they'll understand the consequences of an amphibious invasion of, uh, of Taiwan, and, uh, and that's something we need to forestall. Uh, it, it's critical to our national security. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of, you know, in Congress, you know, we, we mentioned a few bills. We'll, we'll get to those here in a few minutes on the, on the big tech side. Um, but we've kind of had a long-term saga now of this uh, quote-unquote China bill. Uh, started off as endless frontiers, and it was changed to USICA. Then there, the House recently passed after a long period of time. Uh, a competes act, and then I believe Chuck Schumer is now called the latest iteration, something like the Make in America Act. Um, but I know there's been, you know, and this this package has really changed over the course of time. And you said like it started off very much two years ago, a very bipartisan consensus, yeah. and that has kind of evolved, I think, with what's also happened domestically, and also with uh, elements of the Build Back Better agenda. And so, you know, if you look at what happened in the House version, there's things in there for the Green Climate Fund, trade adjustment assistance, and we're getting away a little bit from what we were focused on. And I know there was even some uh, earlier opposition by Marco Rubio and others about lack of guardrails, as we discussed. You know, we need to be making strategic investments to beat China. But what do you see need, need to happen, or do you believe there consensus can be found? Well, look, I think there's, there's room now for a bipartisan consensus on a number of things, and, and we need to find some bipartisan solutions. And, and I know the Democrats were very giddy after winning the election, and they thought they would be in power forever, and they started running a 50-50 Senate as if it was a 60-40 Senate. Uh, but that's just not the case. I think we're going to have a, uh, I think the Republicans are going to win the House back pretty decisively uh, in the fall. I think we'll, GOP will probably win the Senate back as well, uh, which, which probably wasn't in play a few months ago, but, but likely is now. But, but whatever happens on that front, we as Americans are facing a massive threat from China and Russia and, and subsidiary threats from Iran and, and North Korea and, and, and the global jihadists. Uh, we've got to get together on some of these things uh, on a bipartisan basis. And, and one of the things we're asking our companies to do, we're saying, come back to America, reshore to America. But we're not, at, we're not providing them any support for that. And so we need to provide some support. If we're going to get a chip manufacturer to give up its foundry in China, or to give up its business in China and come back to the U.S., there has to be some U.S. support. And, I, and it's hard for me to say that because as a conservative Republican growing up in a free market world, you know, we didn't like things like the Exxon Bank, which I'm now a very big fan of, having used the Exxon Bank uh, pretty effectively uh, to, to counter China in, in places like Brazil and India and other, other Vietnam, where it was a critical tool in our toolkit to, to stop the Chinese from taking over another country with Huawei and a 5G backbone. Uh, it's the same with industrial policy. We're going to have to come up, you know, we're spending so much money anyway, I guess now it doesn't even matter after, uh, after the trillions of dollars of the past couple of years, maybe a couple billion here and a couple billion, billion there, it doesn't matter, but we're going to have to support 
are American companies coming back. And so we've got to have targeted uh, subsidies to get to, to onshore, to bring these jobs back to America, and, and more importantly, to bring the supply chain back to America so that we can never be in a position to be blackmailed by the Chinese the way they did at the outset of the COVID uh, pandemic, whether it was with PPE or ventilator parts or, or pharma. And, and so, so we need a bill like that, and a bill like that can garner bipartisan support. Uh, some of our friends, Marco Rubio and, uh, and Mike Lee and, uh, and Rand Paul and, and guys, <laughs> men and women that are great friends of mine, may not sign on to that because it just doesn't, it, it, it's hard with our free market uh, uh, orientation. But, but we're, you know, we're in a, a heck of a, a bind right now vis-a-vis -vis China, and we, we've got to put some government support behind it. Now, what happened is there was a bill that garnered pretty good bipartisan support that had the CHIPS Act in it. Uh, and that would have helped us onshore and nearshore some of these companies and, and their, their projects and, and create a bunch of American jobs. And, and that had bipartisan support. And then it went to the House. And Nancy Pelosi said, oh, this is anti-China. We'll put the entire Build Back Better initiative into that and say it's anti-China. And then the Republicans will vote for it. And it's like, you know, it may look stupid, but I don't think we're that stupid. And, and so Republican uh, congressmen and senators said, look, we're not going to we're not going to put China and anti-China title on Build Back Better and pass it. Let's go back to the narrow bipartisan bill that was designed to bring American companies home, our critical supply chain home. I think that will pass in the new Congress uh, in uh, probably January, February of next year. But again, now we're giving up another six or eight or 12 months to the Chinese to get that done. We ought to pass a bipartisan bill now. And look, the Democrats can take credit for a bipartisan bill. I mean. I've said this about energy. I said on the Keystone Pipeline, we've got to get the Keystone Pipeline built and built now. I mean, just announcing that it'll happen will drive down the price of oil, even though it'll take several years for it to come online. And what I've said is call it the Biden Build Back Better Pipeline. You'll get support from Republicans. We want it done because it's good for the United States of America. It's good for our allies. It'll drive the price of oil down. It'll make your gas cheaper at the pump. Call it whatever you want, but let's just get it done. So, so we need to get back to some bipartisanship like we had on some issues in the Cold War. We've always been a partisan country, but there were some things where we could come together you know, as Republicans and Democrats. We need to get back to that point, and, and I hope the Democrats will, will, will take the win, take the votes they got in the Senate on that bill, take it to the House as a, as a narrow bill to help bring our tech companies back and reshore, and, and, and let's have a bipartisan win and send a message to Beijing that we can come together as a country on some issues. You own that. You had mentioned uh, some of the private investment, I mean, private capital investments that firms like Intel, TSMC, Samsung, and Texas are making unilaterally. There's there's a variety of, of uh, private capital that's also flowing for semiconductors in Europe. Um, mixed with that, with private subsidies, though, is there a worry that you also, as a as a free marketer myself, you know, that you worry about a, a glut, possibly of over-prescribing a certain type of chip? Uh, a certain type of, of quality, a quantity, uh, because we see that too, for, uh, the variety of kind of even the, the current supply chain issues are, involve a variety of factors and everything from a, a drought in Taiwan to the freeze in Texas to COVID. And so as we kind of go forward and, and e, the EU is also talking about a package as well, um, how do we do that? I mean, if, if you're prescribing that, how do you do that in a way that also you don't uh, set us on a course uh, for further kind of uh, market degradation down the road? No, I, look, I, I think it's a, great, it's a great question. I think that's what concerns some of the folks that didn't vote for the bill uh, that, are, that are normally on our side of the aisle because we don't want a top-down industrial policy. I mean, one of the reasons we're going to beat China and one of the reasons Elon Musk could tweet not just about Starlink but say, you know, when the Russians threatened to get out of the, uh, the space station and Elon said, well, I'll send, send my starship up and, and, and save the space station, the ISS. One of the reasons we can do that is because we have a private sector that's unbelievable in this country. 
and uh, and our allies, especially in Israel on the tech side, are are amazing on this front. The Indians are are coming a long ways. The Japanese, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm still waiting. I think the Chinese are still scared that some volcano is going to open and like a bunch of Honda uh, Honda robots are going to fly out and uh, <laughs> you know and uh, go go uh, conquer uh, China if they attack Japan. So. We, we've got great tech uh, in the alliance in the free world, and it's driven by our big free market, our, our private companies. So we don't want to get into industrial planning, but I think what we can do is, is more generally say, if you're going to bring manufacturing home to America, you're going to create this number of jobs. Uh, we'll support that without telling you what you have to manufacture, what type of chips to make. Let the market figure that out. But let's support. The, the, the problem is, and I've had, had these conversations with a bunch of CEOs, They've got so much sunk cost now in the factories that are overseas, especially the factories in China, that to, to you know to bring them back here and start them again, it's just almost cost prohibitive for the market. You know, you've got to report quarterly earnings, and uh, and the shareholders don't want to see you you know not not paying dividends for a couple of quarters or a couple of years because you're coming home. If we can encourage, but but they'd like to come home, they want to come home. So if we could give them a, a little bit of, of help, get them home. We'll make that up on taxes and revenue and, and jobs on the back end. I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Um, you touched on uh, the outbound screening question. This is something that I, I felt has really started to kind of take traction in D.C., maybe not so much in the current uh, structure of, of what's being debated right now, possibly in the, in the conference negotiations, if, if anything, anything comes out of it. But I know uh, John Cornyn and Bob Casey have proposed, you know, kind of an outbound screening scenario. And you know, a lot of people have been kind of getting, uh, especially with the Trump administration, got used to kind of the ex a lot of the uh, work that we did on export controls. And so, you know, as we kind of do this, you know, I know there's probably a lot of concern with private capital, but they've kind of had their cake and, and ate it too. Uh, you mentioned tech companies, but it's not just in tech companies. There's been a variety of Wall Street Journal assets uh, that have, have kind of moved overseas, not Wall Street Journal, I apologize, Wall Street uh, assets uh, that have moved uh, over and are empowering Chinese tech companies, uh, Chinese PLA, Chinese military. So how would you prescribe that in a, such a way that doesn't become overburdensome, doesn't become just a giant bureaucratic agency, that doesn't prohibit and make us less competitive to actually compete with China? Well, look, we've got to do, do a couple of things. Number one, we have to use the Defense Department list, and we have to designate the Chinese companies that are working with the CCP and working with the PLA and the PLA Navy and the Air Force and, and ensure that we're not investing in those companies. I mean, the idea that we're actually building jet planes and, and submarines and, and ships for the Chinese that are going to be used to fight against our, you know, I've got two daughters in the military, and I know a lot of you have kids in the military, and probably some military officers here. The fact that we're financing the platforms that they're going to use against us is, is absurd. And uh, we've got to take a hard line on that. We've got to expand that list. It's, it's massive. And we've got to stay on it, too, because what will happen is the Chinese just reincorporate. Uh, they figured out the capitalist tricks, you know. So, you know, Stealth Aircraft LLC will become Stealth Aircraft 1 LLC, and Stealth Aircraft 1 LLC will say, well, we're not on the sanction list, so you can invest in us. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we've got to instill some patriotism in our friends in, in Silicon Valley and, and uh, on Wall Street and, and in Hollywood. Uh, you know, in, in, you know the, too many houses in the Hamptons, I think, have been built uh, using Chinese money and Chinese investment and selling out American workers and, and selling out the United States of America with our technology. Uh, and, and that's just got to be, you know, there's got to be some sort of approbation uh, that these folks feel. Maybe they don't care uh, from across the country about, uh, about that sort of investment. And then third, there's just simple things we should do, and this is something that, that, that Larry and, and Steve Mnuchin and I tried to do at the end of the administration. Chinese companies that list on the New York Stock Exchange have not had to follow GAAP guidelines. 
They don't have to follow generally accepted accounting principles. They don't have to be audited the same way that our companies are audited. So we're putting American companies at a competitive disadvantage, having to pay for auditors and that sort of thing. And Chinese companies can you know, put whatever they want in their balance sheet and, and list on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. Why have we done that? We wouldn't let any American company, we wouldn't, I mean, some of the fraud that's taken place makes Madoff look like a piker. And, and yet it's okay because it's just a Chinese company that went bankrupt. No, it's a Chinese company that was a, a fraudulent company that took a bunch of widows and orphans and retirees' money from U.S. investors and, and spent it on who knows what in China. Uh, so, so we've got to tighten up those rules and regulations, uh, and it's got to be permanent. Great. Um, you mentioned uh, TikTok. Um, you know, there was an executive order towards the uh, tail end of the Trump administration related to going after TikTok. Um, but it's not just unique to TikTok. I mean, we've seen, you know, if, there's, if you talk about the Olympics, My 2022 yeah. app, uh, concerns, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the Apple, you know, Walt Garden or other things. Um, you know, when we're looking at what the administration is doing now um, with the retraction of that EO, there's talks that they're considering, you know, a new EO that would put a framework to handle, you know, how you handle foreign-based apps, like you mentioned, you know, the problem of disinformation and misinformation, especially with adversaries such as Russia and China who are developing a lot of technology. We're seeing this in Ukraine. We're seeing this in Russia as we speak. Um, what do you think they need, they need to be doing to actually tackle this? Yeah, so, so we need to move quickly is what we, need to, what we have to do. We, and we got used to, in, the, in the Trump administration at least the last year and a half, and I was at the, the National Security Advisor. I was at the State Department before that uh, doing some other work. Uh, we we kind of got used to Trump time and moving very quickly. Uh, and we saw uh, Prime Minister Modi move very quickly after the Chinese attacked uh, his troops and moved very quickly to ban these apps. And look, there, there's some smart folks in the Biden administration. Uh, you know, my successor is a smart guy, and, and Kurt Campbell's a smart guy in China. The, the, their ages are, uh, but I think there's a tendency. And again, I, I, you know, I only can view this from afar. There's a tendency to, to get things perfect. I mean, there, there's, there's a long process. I mean, the, the, you know, when, when Democrats have the NSC and when they have the, the government, they love process and they, and they want things to be perfect. And a lot of them are academics and they're, they're very, you know, they're smart people. They came from Yale, they came from Harvard, you know, fancy universities. Yeah, and look, there's, there's nothing like a debate in the faculty lounge. I mean, uh, the, you know, it's, uh, the faculty lounge debates are far, far more brutal than uh, anything we see in politics. And, uh, and, and so I think it, there's, you know, it, it's not that they, they necessarily have the wrong policy. I want to see what comes out uh, with these apps, but they know they're bad, they, you know, they, if they're watching the Russians tell their soldiers not to use TikTok, it's pretty clear our soldiers shouldn't be using TikTok. And, uh, but I think they're, they're, you know, that maybe the perfect is the enemy of the good here. We need to move. We need to ban these apps. And I, and I was disappointed that they, uh, they overwrote the, or, you know, withdrew the executive order on TikTok. But that was just a first step. I mean, I think we looked at five to ten apps. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, the Indians are looking at like almost 300 apps. That's where we need to be. We shouldn't be behind Delhi on this. We should be leading the way on this issue. Absolutely. And, and so, look, I, I hope they get a great policy out of their process, and, and maybe they'll come up and ban 500 apps, and I'll be the first to applaud them if they do. Uh, but, but right now, we need to get TikTok taken down immediately. And I think there are a lot of parents out there, like putting aside your, your ideology and, uh, and what you think about China, I think there are a bunch of parents that would be thrilled if TikTok came off their kids', uh, <laughs> off their kids phones. So uh, I think there would be a lot of support for that, bipartisan support for that. Well, speaking of kind of death by committee, death by bureaucracy, I want to kind of talk and, and, and uh, steer the conversation a little bit about towards uh, the defense side as we look at emerging tech and, and what we're seeing actually even in the battlefields in, in Ukraine and Russia 
uh, as we speak, you know, you have things such as the Turkish TB2 drone systems. You've got work being done here in the United States on uh, advanced artificial intelligence for autonomous you know, drones, vehicles. Uh, and, you, and you mentioned, too, what China is just putting into un alone on underwater autonomous vehicles. And you've been a big proponent of a larger Navy. You spent a lot of time talking about that in the administration. But what do you think was done well in the Trump administration? What needs to be happening right now? I know I've heard General Hyten, uh, who just retired, yeah, talk he, about he when was, he was trying he, to break. Yeah, he, he was terrific on that yeah. part, yeah. Try, how do you break the bureaucracy to, to build it in such a way that you know, the R&D, the great R&D that's being done, the great work that's being done in Silicon Valley or at MIT, how do we get that from concept to the warfighter and actually in the field in a, in a quicker fashion. Yeah, look, look the, the old days where we'd have 10 and 15 year windows for procurement and uh, you'd never know if the defense secretary was good until you know two decades later because he saw what, what came out of his decisions or her decisions. I, I think those days are over. I mean, we have to move much quicker. The world is moving quicker. And what, what the Chinese have shown us because they didn't have the legacy programs, and they didn't have the big defense contractors, they're, they're very iterative in their manufacturing process. So they'll come out with a new uh, destroyer and they'll put it to sea, and then whatever doesn't work on it, they'll fix it for the very next destroyer. They're not waiting for a, a whole other uh, flight of destroyers. They're not gonna build 20 with the same problems. They fix it on the next destroyer, and they figure out what's going on. They, and, and it's kind of a manufacturing process that we got used to in Silicon Valley that we're not doing, uh, we're starting to do that, but we're not doing it as effectively as we should. Uh, but I think you see the legacy uh, uh, defense companies, I mean, HI is doing some amazing things in underwater robotics. Uh, you know, I think you're seeing that with uh, with GD is doing some some great things with the uh, with the tanks, uh, with the Abrams, and all of a sudden the Abrams, which is a relatively it's a Reagan era platform, but it's now been upgraded in a, in a way that that makes it a you know a, almost like a space age uh, platform where it can talk to the F-35s and get get uh, you know get fire coordinates from from planes and 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 sensors and drones. Uh, so, so you're seeing a lot of good things happen, and then you're seeing some companies that are disruptors. You've got Andrel and Palantir. Um, that are breaking and using, bringing Silicon Valley manufacturing ideas and, and tech to, to defense, but we have to move faster on that front. I mean, one of the things that happened in the, in the Trump administration, and again, I didn't get to the White House uh, uh, until uh, 2000, middle of 2019, but we were, we were in such bad shape because of defense sequestration. No one really fully understands how bad the Obama era sequestration was for the American military. It, it, it hollowed out the force in a way that uh, we haven't seen since Vietnam and since the post-Vietnam force. It was a hollow force. And so with the defense uh, budget increases that took place in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, all of that went to literally refilling ammo, you know, refilling ammo dunk, uh, dumps, uh, uh, getting new missiles in. I mean, we had ships going to sea that didn't have missiles in their, in their vertical launch cells. I mean, it's like you know, having a revolver and saying, I'm going to shoot you, but there's, no, there, there's one bullet in the, in the revolver. I mean, it, and so we spent the first couple of years getting up to speed. When I got there, I made hypersonics, rebuilding the Navy, uh, uh, quantum, a number of other things, high priorities at the, at the NSC and at the Pentagon. And look, the Pentagon, uh, you know, there, uh, you know I, I'm sure I, I was always Mark Esper's favorite guy when I was calling saying, how are we doing this week on the hypersonics? Because it was week to week. The, the, the Chinese and the Russians were already deploying. And when I first started getting briefings, it was like, well, we're gonna deploy this in 10 years and you know, we'll have three, three things left over from a DARPA program or that sort of nonsense. I said, no, we gotta have these deployed next year. You know, let's, so so let's, let's figure out how to do it and get it done quickly. And, and to the Pentagon's credit, they moved fast and, and we're now gonna have hypersonic uh, platforms, at least for the Army and potentially for the Navy. The Air Force may take, may take a little longer, 
we're going to get those deployed in 2023, and we're going to get back in the hypersonic game with the uh, with the Chinese and the Russians. And 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 we do it because you want a deterrent, uh, you know, so so that they don't think that they have such an overwhelming advantage against us that they can launch. On the Navy front, it took a while. Um, it was, uh, you know, Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, had been the OMB director, as a typical OMB director. He didn't want to give us more money for the Navy. And I had to arm wrestle a lot with uh, with Mick, and then Russ Vought came in as the as the director, and, and we turned Russ into a navalist, and uh, which I, I didn't oh, think. Well. Yeah, I didn't think we could do that with a uh, with an OMB director, but uh, he he became he had the the zealousness of a convert on, on our Navy and building a not just a 350 ship. You know, Navy, which I was trying to get, you know, funding for. You know, Russ was talking about a 500 ship Navy, and this was from the OMB director, and so <laughs> uh, that that was terrific. So, I, so we we left a program that was for a 355 ship Navy that was funded and, and very doable over the next 10 years. It upgraded some of our legacy systems, some of our cruisers, instead of retiring them all, getting the new Constellation class frigates out there, uh, building the the Type Three uh, Arleigh Burks, getting more Virginia class built, getting three a year built. Uh, and unfortunately, that hasn't been been adopted. And the first defense budget submitted by the Biden folks uh, was not great. It was uh, it was actually a, a cut if you factor in inflation. Uh, but but fortunately, uh, on a, again on a bipartisan basis, I give the Democrats in the House and Senate who who got on board with this on a bipartisan basis. I think we plussed up about 40 billion dollars roughly. So we're going to be able to do some of the things we wanted to. But we, we you know. The, while we've been talking for 10 years about a 355-ship Navy, the Chinese have actually built a 355-ship Navy. In fact, they're on their way to 400 ships. We're at about 289, and uh, and could go into a little trough if we don't get those. If we don't, if we if we have a continued resolution and actually don't appropriate the money that uh, under the NDAA. So, you know, we we need to get moving on this, or we're going to get left behind. Absolutely. Um, I want to take about five more minutes of your time, uh, and then if you're okay with a little bit going over a little over, I'd love to get to some audience questions. Absolutely. Uh, but I wanted to steer, uh, you mentioned the great work of my colleague, uh, Kara Frederick, um, and some of the solutions, and then trying to really kind of go through and, and put paper documentation to what you mentioned in a lot of your speech that we're seeing even, you know, in Canada here recently with kind of the uh, removal of, of bank accounts digitally and kind of, so some of the censorship level that we're seeing, uh, you know, kind of brewing up, I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit further, um, you know, your views on kind of, you know, uh, reform it, but don't break it. And so um, when it comes to antitrust uh, enforcement, uh, do you have any particular views or do you believe that there should be updates in some levels of the law? I mean, I, I know you mentioned your, your opposition to some of the merger and acquisition uh, legislation specifically, but you know, you mentioned Mike Lee, uh, a good friend and a very smart colleague on uh, antitrust and all judiciary matters. He's proposed a whole variety of, of uh, antitrust reforms and trying to kind of tackle this very uh, methodically. Is there any kind of area where you see that there could be compromise uh, amongst uh, conservatives are, you know, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a tough debate because I think the parties are very uh, far apart, uh, but there are areas of interest. And so do you think there's anything inside that space? No, I, I think there is. And look, traditionally, Republicans have not been, have, have wanted to allow the free market to work and allow new companies to, to come in and compete against legacy companies. And, and they've been very reticent to use antitrust legislation or, or, or litigation to, to break up American companies. And Democrats have been more uh, on the antitrust side, now we've got Republicans who are for antitrust legislation as it targets tech, and so, you know, you've got some some different political alliances. Uh, look, I think we we need to focus on if we're going to look at the market of antitrust, and, and you know, I, I used to be a lawyer, I guess I still am according to the bar, but uh, uh, you know, I, I wasn't an antitrust specialist, but I, I did enough to, to to be dangerous. 
And, and when you look at the marketplace, we can't, in tech, we can't just look at the U.S. marketplace as being the market. The marketplace is now the world. So if you're a, a U.S. company, you're competing not just against other companies in Silicon Valley and startups in Silicon Valley, you're competing against, you know, startups in Israel, which is like, you know, every day there's some new unicorn company coming out of Tel Aviv. Uh, you're competing against, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, you know, supported uh, tech companies, which are like hybrid free enterprise, Communist Party state as SOEs, you know, the, some kind of a weird hybrid where they, they, they get supported by the banks with low interest loans. So they're not technically state-owned enterprises, but they're like state-owned enterprises. Uh, so there, there's a lot of competition out there for our tech companies, and, and we just need to, if we're gonna, if we're gonna use antitrust tools, are pretty blunt instruments. We need to kind of take a look at the whole market and and how, you know, whatever tools we're trying to give the regulators, and I'm always concerned about giving regulators and, and yeah. lawyers more tools. Uh, we've got to make sure they're pretty narrow, and we we need to make sure they 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 reflect the context of the world we're living in today. You know, this isn't 1970s AT&T, uh, right. you know, antitrust type. Uh, litigation and, and regulation. Absolutely. Well, I want to open it up uh, to some questions from the audience. We'll take, you know, hopefully another five, ten minutes of your time, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right, who we got? Walter. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Walter Lohman, Director of our Asian Studies Center here at Heritage Foundation. Um, the semiconductor issue is a big one, so I'll just take a reservation on giving the billions of dollars to these big companies, especially as I don't think any of them will leave China. You know, you can give them a billion dollars and take it and run. They're continuing to invest in China. But maybe we could have that debate another time. Um, I wanted to get to your... Well, we should put some strings attached. So, you know, attached yeah, I know. So, so you can... Dollars, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, but uh, I wanted to, to, to follow up on the point you made about the lessons that the Chinese should learn from what's going on in Ukraine, uh, especially if it continues the way it's going. Um, what you say assumes that we're not moving anyway toward, toward a broad decoupling of economic relationship with China, right? Otherwise, there's no incentive along the lines you described about the Chinese not you know, behaving. Um, so I wonder if you could just comment on how you see what is generally agreed upon needs to be some disentanglement, at least. And how extensive should that be, in your opinion? Yeah, so so my, my feeling is, with respect to Russia, at this point, given that they've invaded a sovereign country and a neighboring country, uh, we had to decouple the heck out of them and you know, cut them off from the free world, and they shouldn't be selling anything or buying anything from the free world. Let, let Russia go back to you know, how it was in Soviet times or even worse. And so I think we, they have to be very harsh penalties for what they've done. I mean, what they've done is, I, I've been to Ukraine. I, I was there on an IRI election uh, observation mission in 2014. This is a relatively modern European country. These are folks, especially when you get up to like places like Lviv, you feel like you're in Prague or, or Warsaw. These, these people want to live with like their European neighbors do. They want a democracy. They want to be able to go buy an iPhone. Uh, they they want to have, have free speech. Uh, they don't want to live in Putin's dystopian Russia. And, and for him to decide, well, that's, that, that, that's too big of a challenge for me. And, and look, I don't think it's just geopolitics. I mean, you know, I understand all the, you know, his stories about we stopped Army Group South in Ukraine, and we stopped, you know, Napoleon in, in Ukraine with his, with his southern thrust, and that gives us the strategic depth we need to protect the, the Rodina, the motherland. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's not the real concern Vladimir Putin has. The concern he's got is that there are people that are very similar to the Russians, that, 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 uh, very similar in background and temperament, 
and they've got a thriving democracy, and they want to join the European Union, and they want to join NATO, and they want to be in the West, and, and that's a total challenge to his rule in Moscow, and that's why he's doing this. And so we got to cut him off. When it comes to China, look, we have to, we, we tried to do a phase one trade deal with China that was fair. I, I don't think we need to cut off our relations with China, but China's got to stop stealing from us, number one. They've got to stop subsidizing their, their companies and their, their products that they're selling to us and dumping on us, you know, number two. Uh, you know, they, they've got to stop using slave labor uh, to send us the products that we're buying from them. Uh, so, so if we can come up with a fair trade relationship with China, that'd be fine. The other thing we, we, we can't do is we just can't put ourselves at the mercy of the Communist Party of China when it comes to critical infrastructure, whether it's medical, pharma, uh, tech, uh, rare earths. We need to have those things at home. We cannot be dependent on Beijing uh, as a nation for, for the, the things that we need to, to operate every day. So we have to have those supply chains, either trust supply chains where we're buying from Australia or, or Mexico or Canada or, or, or you know if we're going to buy overseas or New Zealand or the EU, or we've got to do make the things or grow the things or mine the things here in America and process them. And uh, we just can't rely on the Chinese for that. So, so there's got to be some decoupling. Uh, and, and if the Chinese play by the rules of the road, and, and, uh, and again, if they don't invade Taiwan and, and try and subjugate their neighbors, and, and if they stop trying to take over an entire swath of the South Pacific, this, you know, the Pacific, the South China Sea, you know, they treat the South China Sea like it's Lake Tahoe and it you know, somehow belongs to them. Uh, those, those are things that the Chinese have to do to stop to, to, to stay in the ballgame. But, uh, you know, I, again, I think they need to see that there's a real, they need to see a, a big dis disincentive with how we deal with Putin and, and the Russians. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're going to have the Davidson window of five years is going to be a, a window of two years for an invasion of Taiwan, depending on how this plays out. Bill Wickerman. Hi, Bill Wickerman. Thanks for your comments. And I came in a little late, so if you, you've already talked about patents, just shut me down. Did you talk about patents and IP? I, uh, briefly. Just say this. And China used to be known as the, the thieves of the world. And then they figured out there's a glass ceiling on being a thief because you can only go so far as your competitor. They have actually been dramatically improving their IP system for the last six years, such that you actually have multilateral corporations now litigating inside of China because they're, they're improving IP regime. And you have actually indigenous real technology coming out of Chinese companies. Simultaneously, the U.S. for about 16 years has been downgrading our IP system, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We're no longer number one in the world. Could you speak to the role of patents and IP and national security? Yeah, so it's a great question, Bill. And uh, uh, yeah, we used to have the, the, a patent system that was the, the envy of the world, and uh, and we've let it uh, uh, fall behind. And but but the, and so there's systematic things that we can do to improve filings and making it easier and and, and encouraging uh, uh, people to take out patents and. and you know, in some ways, the Chinese are, 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 you know, they like metrics and they like showing that they're number one. So I, I wonder, you know, how, how effective or how, how useful uh, some of those patents are, because I, I think they like saying we've filed more patents than any other country. Uh, but, but, but your point is a good one, and, and that is the Chinese used to, to buy whatever came out of the market, reverse engineer it, and then start making it in China and then dumping it back on, on us, which would, would damage our companies in two ways. Because number one, they wouldn't get the license fees for their IP and, and the royalties that they deserve for the invention. But then two, the dumped product would come in and displace 
the product that was invented here and, and would kill the company. So it's a, it, was a, it was really a, a massive double whammy. It's, in fact, that's why Christopher Ray uh, said it was the biggest wealth transfer. What, what we've seen with Chinese IP theft over the last uh, several decades is the biggest IP or the biggest transfer of wealth in human history. And I, when he said that, all I could think of I was thinking of you know, the Trajan's column and uh, in, in Rome and, and thinking of the Dacia and you know the, all the carts of loot coming back from uh, uh, from the invasion of Dacia and uh, and thinking, okay, the Romans have now been outdone by by the Chinese with computers and hacking. Uh, but but that, that's changing a bit now. It's still taking place. And, and if they need something that's important, they'll, they'll try and steal it from us. But, but they're putting a lot of money into research and development at Chinese universities. And they're also bringing over a lot of talent. They're bringing over foreign talent. You've got American professors going in and teaching there. But they're also sending over China, the best and brightest Chinese students that come to Stanford and MIT and Caltech and, and UCLA and Berkeley and, and all our great universities. And then they're, they're drawn back either because their families are basically hostage and they have to come back or they're, they're enticed to come back with, with high pay from some of these Chinese tech companies. And so you're seeing some really quality R&D coming out of China. The other thing is they're not doing, by the way, for, for our woke friends, if the Chinese ever take over, you're not gonna get all the woke stuff in the schools. The Chinese are pretty serious about how they, they, they study. Uh, they're, they're studying STEM uh, you know, classes and, uh, and literature classes, and, uh, and, and there's not a lot of nonsense going on in the Chinese schools. And so they, they've got they've got a lot of they've got a lot more engineers than we have. I mean, a bigger population, so you'd expect they have a lot more engineers, a lot more scientists. And and and, and frankly, it would be racist of us to think that they, because of what they're doing, they're not going to surpass us unless we get our act together. So, you know, look, there are structural things we can do with our patent system here, and we, we need to improve it and modernize it and and make it easier to file. Uh, but but the, the fundamental issue is we've got to compete with the with the Chinese. At, at the STEM level, we need to educate our kids uh, so that, that we we always have the best and brightest uh, in America. And, and look, we've got a great foundation for it. America is fundamentally strong. I mean, people, you know, there's, there's a whole cottage industry about America being in decline, and and America's best days are behind us. I, I, I'm like Ronald Reagan. I think our best days are in front of us. I think we've got a tremendous. This country is amazing. No one's getting the wheel well of of a, of a jet at LAX and trying to get out of America. Okay, people are trying to come to America, and that hasn't changed. I mean, this, this is an amazing country, but but we've got to, we've got to fix a few things here so that we can stay ahead of our, our adversaries, whether it's Russia or China. Absolutely. Speaking, and I'll just take the quick opportunity. You mentioned briefly in your remarks the DOJ China initiative. Uh, I want to get your thoughts because you know I watched you know right I think at the tail end of January, Director Ray gave a great speech out of the Reagan Library where he essentially did what you and John Ratcliffe and Bill Barr and others have been doing for years. We're unpacking all the challenges of China, why we need to do it, all the different, you know, and why it's such a, um, you know, painter's brush of, of the landscape of, of a challenge. Uh, and then less than two, three weeks later, we see this kind of rollback of this kind of multi-month uh, evaluation by the Department of Justice. And so, you know, what what are you seeing from the Biden administration? Are they are they taking this challenge seriously? And a lot of this is like a smoke signal downstream to FBI field offices, U.S. attorney offices. Yeah. But what are, what's your view of, of how this uh, administration is tackling the problem? Well, uh, first of all, with Christopher Ray, he's a serious guy, uh, a serious lawyer, a serious director of the FBI, and, and he understands the challenge that, that China's posed to us. So he, he gets it as well as anybody in the country. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm hoping that this is just a name change. You know, that's you know, we're going to change the name of the university, and make it <clears throat> more woke, and now we're going to go after nation states and not just target China because we're not anti-China and we're not anti-Chinese. 
uh, and I think that that might be a symbol to uh, to the folks you know in, in their coalition. Uh, but the but the reality is, it is the Chinese that are stealing. It's the Chinese communists and their spy agencies and the PLA Army and Navy, which are sending their military officers here and their programs. They're the ones who are spying on us. They're the ones who are stealing our technology. You know, it, it's you know the, the Taliban does a lot of bad things, but the Taliban's not trying to steal you know patents you know and, and, and technology from us for the most part. Uh, it's the Chinese that are doing it, and we just need to call it out and call the Chinese out and, and, and be tough on it. I'm hoping, again, that this is a name change because look, Chris, Chris Ray is a, a serious guy. He's a smart guy, and he, and he, he understands the, the Chinese challenge. He's seen it up front as director of the FBI. He knows what he's up against. And he, look, he's up against a terrible uh, – he's got a terrible challenge. I mean, there, there, there are places where we've got two or three you know, FBI counterintelligence officers where, where you know there must be thousands of Chinese spies and uh, so he's got a he's got a lot a big a lot on his plate. Uh, I'm hoping this that we're gonna again maybe we'll we'll have a maybe come up with a better policy. I hope they do as part of this deliberative process. And I don't really care what the name is as long as they're still catching spies and <laughs> and, and putting bad guys in jail. Uh, I don't care what they call it. They can call it the the Biden Build Back Better you know uh, you know spy catcher you know bill or whatever. I don't you know take credit for it. Just get the job done for the American people. Yeah, we'll do one more. Thank you. Good morning, sir. I'm Heino Klink, and uh, you, you mentioned on, on, during your opening remarks great power competition on a couple of occasions, and uh, I think great power competition, quite frankly, was a great organizing strategy, not just for us internally, but also externally with our allies and partners. The Biden administration just released its Indo-Pacific strategy a little bit over two weeks ago. The word competition appears three times. China barely appears in, the, in that. I was wondering what your comments might be about what does that convey to our partners and allies in the region. Thank you. Well, th thank you. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we did classified our Indo-Pacific strategy uh, right at the end of the administration. It was one of the things I did before leaving. I thought it was important for our allies and our friends. And we obviously consulted with our allies before we declassified that strategy, and they were very much in favor of it, especially the Japanese. And I think it laid down a, a, a very good marker. Uh, the, the Biden administration has some some smart folks with with uh, Jake and Kurt and, and and others who who understand the challenge that we're facing. Uh, you know, look, the Democrats never want to offend anybody, and the White House doesn't want to offend anybody. So maybe they don't want to offend China, so they won't. They'll refer to you know powers in the region. They want to refer to competition as opposed to adversaries and and that sort of thing. But but the real proof in the pudding is how how we're going to uh, move forward. And 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 some of the things that, that have been promising, I was. It was nice to see that the Japanese prime minister was the first foreign visitor to visit President Biden in the White House. Uh, it's nice to see the quad being built on. We need to do more on the quad. Uh, the quad was pretty anemic, uh, probably even by the time I took office but uh, as national security advisor, but that was one of our top priorities uh, during the last year and a half of the Trump administration was to really build out a muscular quad, which is Japan, Australia, India, and the U.S., uh, combining to be a bulwark against the expansionism of uh, a very aggressive and assertive uh, PRC. Uh, and, and I think the, the Biden administration has put some effort and some lift into the Quad, which is, is, you know, I commend them on that. But it needs to go further. In the Quad, we really need to up the military uh, alliance in the Quad. And, and the, the Indians were always a little reticent on that, but I think they, they've learned by, by very sad experience of, of, of being attacked by the Chinese, not just recently, but over history. And so I think they're ready. So I think we need to, and, and the fact that we've sold P-8s to the Indians and, and we're, we're doing naval exercises with the Indians uh, uh, is good. So I think, I think we, we strengthen the quad and that's something the, 
uh, the, the current administration is doing. So I, I give them credit for that. But, but we have to have a consistent, we have to help the American people to understand what we're up against. And we didn't take the, the Russians seriously. Every time Putin said, I'm going to invade Ukraine, I'm going to do this, there were all kinds of people saying, oh, he's just bluffing, he's not going to do that. He'd have to be a madman to do that. And we've seen him do exactly what he said he's going to do. You know, this, this has happened in history. We've had other dictators say they're going to do something. Everyone said, no, they'd never do that. They'd never disturb the peace. It would be bad for their country, and then they'd do it. And, uh, and so we've got to be careful now that Putin says he wants the Baltics. And I'm sure the Finns were saying, hey, how did we, we get pulled into this? You know, when in the same speech, he said Finland was part of the Russian family. <laughs> the Finns were kind of saying, hey, we're, uh, you know, we've never been part of the family, as he found out uh, in 1939. It didn't work out very well for you then. It's probably not going to work out for you if you try it again. Uh, but we've got to take these people at their word. And the Chinese have said they're going to, they're going to take Taiwan. Uh, they're going to take the South China Sea. They're going to take big swaths of, of India. At some point, they're going to turn the Russians because uh, there's a lot of, of, quote, Chinese property that was taken in the 1865 Treaty of Peking uh, that the Russians are sitting on in Siberia and eastern Russia that's, uh, that's part of the traditional homeland of China. And, uh, and President Xi has said that he'll never rest until uh, he recovers all of the, the, property, the land that was taken from China in the center of humiliation. So at some point, he's going to turn on Putin. Maybe he'll let Putin wear himself out here, and then he'll take the property he wants. Uh, but it's a very expansionist power. And so uh, you know, we, we've, we've got to educate the American people on what we're up against and, uh, and what we're fighting. And, and it's not just that they want to be an empire. It's that they want to impose their ideology on the rest of the world. They want to censor us. They want to censor American movies. They want to censor American sports teams. They want to take away our, our you know, one the thing that makes us uniquely American isn't, isn't our ethnicity. We're all, we all look different. Uh, it, it, it's our, our values. And, and the core of those, being able to talk about those values is the First Amendment, which it protects religion and speech. And uh, you know, the Second Amendment protects the First Amendment. That First Amendment is what it's all about. And the Chinese have no interest in free speech. They have no interest in us being able to debate our politics. Uh, you know, we, we don't hate our Democrat friends. Or, you know, we, it, this is what we do as a country. We, we, we're, we have our ideas, and we have a, a marketplace for the ideas, and we fight for our ideas zealously, and, 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 and we create policy as a result of it. I mean, it's, it, it's what makes us Americans, and the Chinese have no interest in that, and they'll shut it down. And, and so people need to understand that our life and liberty uh, and our way of life and our liberty is, is at stake in this, in this battle. It's not just a, a battle of who's got the most DVGs or the most carriers or the, most, the, the best planes. It's a battle by ideas and ideology. And their ideology is hardcore Marxist-Leninism, and our ideology is freedom and liberty. And uh, we, we can't confuse that. And so we need to make sure, as we, as we try to be polite in some of these docu documents and try and be diplomatic, we need to make sure that we're not letting the American people down and, and don't, uh, you know, hide from the American people the battle that we're actually in. Well, this has been a great conversation. I know that there's so many other tech, tech issues that we could possibly tackle, but we're out of time. But uh, I can't thank you enough for your service, uh, for the conversation today, really insightful. I uh, look forward to what the work that you're going to be doing ahead, your co conversation at our friends at Hudson tomorrow. Uh, and so with that, I want everybody to thank uh, Ambassador O'Brien and really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, Justin. thank that you. Was terrific. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you all very much.